Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome to our Father's Day weekend. We are so happy that you have chosen to worship with us in the worship folders, a communication card that looks like this. We invite you to take it out of, and fill it out. Let us know of your presence with us this morning and drop it in the offering plate later in today's service. Well, if you feel like you came to church today and ended up at SeaWorld instead, I assure you that you are in the right place. Um, we're getting ready for vacation Bible school uh, this coming week, and uh, I would our, our theme is deep sea discovery, so you're gonna see fish themes and sea creature themes all through the building. And I really would encourage you to just take a walk through the uh, space today and in in over to the gym and down the halls. You're gonna see all sorts of neat things prepared for uh, the kids who are gonna be here um, this week. You know, something about walking into the worship center this morning, see a big giant yellow submarine on the doors out front uh, kind of brings back for those of us who may remember the Beatles, uh, a song by that title. But we had lots of volunteers the last couple of weeks helping to get ready for this, led by Sue Campbell and uh, Tammy Bowman, and we appreciate them so much, and all of you who have made, uh, through your hard work, made it all possible for kids to come this week and have a great experience, and we know they will. Uh, if you see Sue or Tammy, say thank you to them. Uh, let them know uh, how much you appreciate them as well. We're also this morning going to continue this teaching series on Abraham, and we're going to be asking the question, is God enough for us? Is God enough for us? And we're going to be talking about the temptation to compromise our morals and our values based on another great story from the life of Abraham in the Old Testament. So we'll get to all of that in a few moments and some baptisms, and uh, we've got a good worship day planned for you here. But let's pray together, shall we? Gracious Lord, we come to this place with joy to worship you. Forgive our sins so that our joy may be more pure. Receive our praise and our adoration that you today may be blessed by this worship and then speak to us through your word that we may hear your guidance uh, for our lives. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one Friday, Richard called his pastor, and he said, you won't believe what's happened to me this week. First of all, I found out that I owed thousands of dollars in income tax that I had not expected to pay. And on top of that, I had one catastrophe after another at work, personnel problems, contractors who botched up major jobs, longtime customers who decided to take their business somewhere else, legal problems, and pressure from every side. It was the worst week I've ever had. And then he asked the pastor a question. He said, maybe, uh, maybe, and it is a question that maybe we've all wondered about at some point in time, but never dared to ask out loud. He said, do you think Satan has singled me out for some kind of special attack? And then Richard went on to talk about some of the problems that we face as a nation and he brought up decisions by his local community leaders that were not all that friendly to churches and to Christ followers. And he continued to press the point by saying, we are living in a time when evil seems to be winning. A number of years ago, Chuck Colson spoke about how there is a culture war raging in America today. It is not a war between Republicans and Democrats, between liberals and conservatives. It is rather a war, he said, between those who believe in the concept of God's truth and those who don't. 
One group believes in the concept of absolute values, while another group believes that truth is in the eye of the beholder. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Hitler's Cross, points out that prior to World War II, Germany had its share of philosophers, brilliant men who gained a wide audience through their teaching and writing. Germany was the hotbed of liberal scholarship that stripped Christianity of its uniqueness. The author then points out that the war, the war department in Berlin did not create the ovens in Auschwitz. They were dreamed up in the halls of learning when God was abandoned. His conclusion is this, when a nation forgets God, anything is possible. When God is rejected or not recognized, human nature becomes an untamed beast. See, we live in a world that is at war. Ever since Lucifer attempted to overthrow God and was put out of heaven, a war has been raging in the universe. It is a war between light and darkness, between good and evil, between God and Satan, between angels and demons. We live on a battlefield. And may I suggest that right here in DeWitt or any other city in the world, we are on the front lines. I think what was said of ancient Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 could also be said of us. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. How else can we explain the moral negligence and the widespread tolerance today of evil? How else can we explain the ridicule of biblical Christianity and the worship of tolerance and diversity and and multicultural pluralism instead, or indeed it is one of the ironies of our day that although this nation, for example, was founded as a place of religious freedom, it has become in many corners of our land a place of spiritual darkness. Welcome to the battle. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter six, verse 11, to put on all of God's armor so that we will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to, de to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. You see, our adversary is cruel and he is cunning with many weapons at his disposal and many people ready to do his bidding. This morning, the battle rages all around us. If we do not see it or hear it, it is because it is being fought in the realm of the spirit. And that, by the way, is why it's not primarily a, a political issue. The president is all, ultimately not our enemy, nor is Congress, nor even our township officials on the local level. We are to honor them and pray for them as leaders, even while we may disagree with some of the things they say or do. See, it's not a political battle that, that we are trying to win. It is a spiritual battle. Paul says in Ephesians 6:12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. So with that as an introduction this morning, I wanna take us to our text back in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. And immediately it grabs our attention because this chapter records the first battle in the Bible. The ancient story, which may seem at first to have no relevance to us, actually contains the basic principles of spiritual warfare. First of all, it tells us how to fight. 
and how to win. Secondly, it reveals Satan's diabolical strategy. And third, it teaches us crucial truths that we need to hear. So this chapter falls into two parts. The first 16 verses go into great detail describing the first war in the Bible. Let me kind of summarize it for us. In the days of Abraham, which was like 1850 years BC, five pagan kings lived near the southern end of the Dead Sea. Two of the kings ruled over the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, whenever you see those two cities mentioned in the Bible, they are always connected with the idea of gross moral evil. By the time of the New Testament, these two cities come to symbolize the moral evil of this world. But back to our story. The five pagan kings were conquered by four pagan kings from the east, roughly from the area around modern-day Iraq or Iran. From, for 12 years, the five kings paid tribute to one of the four kings. But in the 13th year, they decided to rebel and they refused to pay, which caused the four kings to declare war against them. Now, in telling this story, I have emphasized that all the kings involved were pagans. That's important because when these pagan kings were fighting each other, they would, there would be normally no reason for God's people to be involved. Abraham, who was living in Canaan, at first has no reason to care one way or the other. As the expression goes, he didn't have a dog in this fight. But things changed when he learned that his nephew Lot had been taken captive when Sodom, where Lot was living, was overrun by one of the kings from the east. And now Abraham faces a moral crisis. What should he do about Lot? There are at least two reasons for Abraham not to get involved. First, it wasn't his fight. And Lot had, because of his choices in life, brought this on himself. Second point has particular value since Lot had foolishly chosen the well-watered plains near the Dead Sea while leaving the scrubland to his uncle Abraham. But just as one wrong decision soon leads to another, at first he is merely living, uh, we are told, near Sodom, and then we find out he moves into Sodom. No doubt Lot justified living in this state of moral compromise by saying, you know what, I'm strong enough. I, it won't affect me. I'll just be a light in the middle of all this darkness. But unfortunately, moral compromise never leads to anything good. In this case, it, was, it led to Lot's capture by the four pagan kings. Genesis 14, 13 through 16 tells how Abraham responded when he heard the news. He took 318 trained fighters from his own household and made a daring nighttime raid. His tiny army routed the four pagan armies and they chased them back north of Damascus. In the process, he recovered an enormous amount of goods and treasure, as well as rescuing Lot and his family. So from this story, we can discover four important principles about spiritual warfare. And the first principle of spiritual warfare is the danger of compromise. If Lot had not been in Sodom in the first place, Abraham would never have had to rescue him. And when will we learn that nothing good comes from compromising our moral values. Every time we try to set aside our Christian values in order to get along with the world, we are the ones who end up suffering for it. 
The second principle of spiritual warfare is the loyalty of love. Here we see Abraham risking his own life in order to save his wayward nephew. Sometimes love will cause us to do things that that seem odd to outsiders. We may have to expend our resources in ways that we didn't expect. Tough love, sure, but what about risky love? C.S. Lewis once said, love anything and you risk having your heart broken. How true. The only way to spare ourselves the pain of loving is to live inside of a box, cut off from everyone and everything around us. See, love doesn't just sit there and go, well, he's finally getting what he deserves. No, love cares enough to get involved even at the risk of being hurt. The third principle of spiritual warfare is the importance of preparation. See, when the moment came, Abraham could instantly call for 318 trained men. Who had trained them? He had. They were his personal special ops team, ready to go into battle at a moment's notice. And the same holds true in our spiritual warfare. Since we never know where Satan will attack next, we must be ready to respond at a moment's notice. That means being prayed up, being studied up, having the word of God in our hands and in our hearts. It means being alert at all times, watching for the attack of the enemy. Christ followers who are asleep at the switch aren't good to anyone. And then the fourth principle of spiritual warfare is the courage to fight. Here we see Abraham's courage at its finest. He didn't hesitate to go into battle. Even against a much larger force, he had the courage to fight because he knew his cause was just. Now we move into the second half of Genesis 14. One battle is over, but there's another one that is about to begin. As Abraham is returning home, two kings come out to meet him. One is the king of Sodom, the other the king of Salem. Now these two men could hardly be um, more different. Bera, the king of Sodom, rules over the most vile, perverse, morally corrupt city in the world. He represents the ultimate end of humankind when we turn away from God. The king of Salem is this mysterious man by the name of Melchizedek. Verse 18 tells us that he is the king of Salem. Salem is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. But his name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. He is called a priest of God most high. So here is this gentle king who has somehow come to know the one true God, and the particular name given for God here is El Elyon, the Most High God. It refers to the God who is above all other gods, the supreme ruler and lord of the entire universe. He's the God who reigns above all the false gods of the pagans. But somehow Melchizedek has come to know this God and has become his priest even while serving as king of Jerusalem. All of this is rather mysterious to us, and there are many questions that remain unanswered. We'll get to some of them in a bit. But of greatest interest are the words of this mysterious Melchizedek to Abraham in verses 19 and 20. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Now, Melchizedek does two things for Abraham. He blesses him in the name of the Lord, and he reminds him of the true source of his amazing victory. It's as if he's saying, Abraham, 
How do you think you managed to defeat those four armies? Do you think it was your brilliant military strategy? Forget it. You took a tiny handful of men and you defeated a much larger army because God himself gave you the victory. He delivered your enemies into your hands. At this crucial moment, the king of Sodom speaks with what seems to be a very tempting offer. And he says, give back my people who were captured. But Abraham, you can keep for yourself all of the goods that you have recovered. He's tempting Abraham to keep the spoils of victory. No doubt, this meant a chance not only to be rich, because he was already rich, but to become even super rich. Before we go any further, let's remember that Abraham had the right to keep the spoils. After all, he's the one who risked his life to go and rescue Lot. We've all heard the saying, to the victor goes the spoils. No one could criticize him for saying yes to such an offer. He might even rationalize it by arguing that by accepting all of this, all this stuff, he would, it would allow him to give even more to God. But he didn't. He said no. He turned down the king of Sodom without even batting an eyelash. No long wait, no thought to, well, just give me some time to pray about it. He had no doubts, he had no hesitation. He said no to taking personally the spoils of war. Now listen to his answer to the king of Sodom. I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from what belongs to you. Now this is take, for him to take it personally. He's not gonna do it. Otherwise you might say, I am the one who made Abraham rich. See, Abraham knew all about Sodom. He knew what kind of people lived there. He knew what kind of sin took place there and he wanted nothing to do with it. Because he had sworn an oath to God, he had the moral courage to say no when the temptation came, even when others might have said yes. So why didn't Abraham keep the spoils of war for himself? Because they came from an evil source, because he wanted no alliance with Sodom, because he knew that God was enough for him, because he wanted Sodom to get no credit whatsoever, and because he wanted God to get all the glory. This little episode leads me to suggest three characteristics about victorious faith. First, victorious faith always involves humility, seen in the fact that Abraham voluntarily, instead of taking all this stuff himself, he gave a tenth of it all to Melchizedek. As Hebrews 7 points out, you only make an offering to someone you regard as greater than yourself. And even though he had just won an impressive victory, he realized that Melchizedek was greater than he was. Second principle is generosity, seen in the fact that while Abraham would take nothing for himself, he offered part of the spoils to the men who were with him. And the third principle is purity, seen in the fact that Abraham would not compromise his values because he knew that the king of Sodom in offering the spoils was essentially trying to buy his influence with dirty money. So when we stand back and we take a look at Genesis 14 in perspective, we realize that there are really two battles going on here, one between Abraham and the pagan kings, and the other between Abraham's godly conscience and the pool of the moral compromise. This ancient story forces us to confront a very penetrating question, is God enough for us? Or do we also need what the world has to offer? 
Let me wrap up this message by drawing four principles that stand out, I think, from Genesis 14. One, there will be continual conflict in the Christian life. No one ever, ever arrives to a point of where we never are tempted to sin and never have any conflict. Romans 7, if it teaches us anything, is that even the best Christians will struggle with sin till the day we die. If the Apostle Paul had to fight with sin all of his life, so will you and I. Secondly, great temptation often comes after a great victory. It's precisely what happened to Abraham. The king of Sodom came to him after his great victory, not before it, but after it, and the same thing will happen to you. Have you had a great victory in your life lately? Maybe an answer to prayer, maybe um, a major battle you kind of felt you won, a, a big project that you finished, some personal goal or important test that you passed. Beware. Temptation often comes in the afterglow of great victory. Three, as we grow, we will be continually tested regarding our ultimate choice in life. Abraham had to decide whether God was enough for him or whether he also needed these treasures from Sodom. So don't be surprised if God tests you this week in some way. And then only when we glimpse the greatness of God will we have the will we have the strength to withstand temptation. That's what happened to Abraham. It was only because he lifted his hand to God Most High that he had the inner strength to resist the king of Sodom. Some of us spend too much time worrying about the temptation when we ought to be spending more time getting to know God. When our God is big enough, temptation will be small and we can win the battle. So let me just come back to one final question and then we'll be done. Who is Melchizedek? It may interest you to know that he's only mentioned three times in all of Scripture. Here in Genesis 14, he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and he's mentioned again in the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews 7 tells us the most that we know about him. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he owned. Hebrews 7, 2 and 3 says, the name Melchizedek means king of justice, the king of Salem means king of peace. But the scripture has, there's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling, resembling the son of God. And that's the key phrase. Melchizedek resembles the son of God. Some people have wondered, some scholars have wondered if Melchizedek actually was a pre-earthly appearance of Jesus Christ. That's not necessarily relevant to this story today, but the point is, Scripture gives us no recorded genealogy, meaning we don't know when he was born, we don't know when he died, but it says he remained a priest forever because no one can prove that he ever died. Jesus also remains a priest forever. We know that he died, but he was raised from the dead and remains alive in heaven. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king having the authority to help us and a priest having a heart that is sympathetic to our needs. And here's the writer's conclusion to the matter in Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. Now notice that everything in our spiritual life hinges on that last verse or that last phrase, he lives forever. If Jesus is dead, we have no hope. 
and our faith is totally in vain. But if Jesus is alive, then he's able to save us. Because Jesus Christ is alive, our salvation is sure. Because Jesus Christ is alive, our needs will be completely met today, tomorrow, and forever. And because Jesus Christ is alive, our ultimate victory is guaranteed. But it brings me back to the initial question. Do you believe that Satan singles us out? Personally, my answer is yes. I think we live in a world where Satan has many friends and doing his work and where the spiritual atmosphere can be very dark indeed. But that fact should not discourage us because the darker the night, the brighter the light. The greater the test, the greater the opportunity for seeing God's power at work. I know these are difficult days for all of us. Satan attacks us on many levels, and the way he attacks me may not be the way he attacks you, but I do know what he wants to do. He wants to divide us, he wants to discourage us, and he wants to ultimately defeat us. In the day of battle, we only have two options. We can either fight or we can flee. Abraham was willing to fight, and he won the victory. You see, our only hope is to turn our eyes on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. So when you feel yourself growing a little weary in this life, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look to sinful people or fallible leaders for your answer, but focus on the Son of God. He has not brought us this far to cause us to fail. And he will give us the strength to keep going. And his promise is that he will bring us home safely in the end. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, your word tells us that you are enthroned in heaven and you are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've created heaven and earth. And we confess that we too uh, often seek to enthrone gods of our own making, and worse yet, we lean on them and we trust these empty gods and we set them before us as worthy of our attention and efforts, thinking that they can grant us security and peace and comfort and happiness. And we set our course each day to pursue these empty gods and we're busy frantically propping up these gods by our own strength and abilities. We forget that we're in a faith race. God, cause us to look to Jesus this morning, for he alone is our goal. He alone is our aim and our treasure. Incline your ear and hear us, and open your eyes and set, see us and save us from the sins that cling so closely to us. Grant us your spirit to come that we might, with great hope and expectation and joy, look to Jesus, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and in so doing, run the race that he has set before us. We give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.